0: Hi, and welcome to the Bluff Church Podcast. Each week, we bring you the Sunday message from the Bluff Church in Poppin Bluff, Missouri. If you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment and leave a review on your favorite listening platforms on iTunes or Google Play. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast. For more information about the Bluff, we invite you to visit our website at thebluff.church or our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for The Bluff Church. If you live in the Popper Bluff area, we invite you to come be a part of the Bluff on any Sunday at 1027 a.m. in the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. Now here's this week's message. Well, good morning. those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mason Powell. I am the teaching co-pastor here, and if you're a guest this morning, I am both thrilled and honored that you have decided this morning to be part of the bluff, to be what's part of going on around here. And for the rest of you who have been attending for the past several weeks, let me express my deep appreciation and gratitude and thankfulness for all of you who have given us warm gifts, baked goods, all the gift cards and stuff like that, as me and my wife are in this process of transitioning here and moving here, and we could not be we're touched by that so thank you very much. At the same time before we go any further let's take a minute and let's give a round of applause to our media team. Yeah. I'll be honest I would be filled with so much anxiety to be doing what they're doing. With behind the screen over there with all the flashing lights and buttons, I would be having a panic attack. That is something I could not do. I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to technology. Well, before we actually get into the text and the message this morning, we're going to do a little bit of spontaneous thing right here. Um, about a few hours ago, I heard the news about all the, the shootings that happened happened um, yesterday and this morning. And, and I think what we need to do is just take a minute and let's just calm our hearts and, and let's just pray together real fast. So if you would, please bow your heads and I'll pray. Father, my heart is so heavy this morning with the thought that has happened, that this this tragedy has happened. It is not the way you designed this world. It is not the way you want things to go, and yet we still continue to do these things to each other. But your kingdom is coming, Father. And this is just a reminder to us in some ways that the work is not finished, that there is still a world out there that needs to know you and what you've done and the new life you have. And so, Father, please help us to be reminded of that. Help us to be useful in that regard. As our hearts go out to the families who are suffering right now, we, we lament with them, Father, that this is not the way things were supposed to be. And we ask that you might be present not only this morning, but especially with those families who are suffering. As in your name I pray, amen. Well, on a completely different turn of no, okay, I've got a bit of a funny story to share with you this morning. See, when I graduated high school, I did not do the typical thing like all the other high school guys did. Uh, some of them went on cruises, some of them traveled the country, uh, some of them just got a job and entered into the workforce. Um, I was a bit different. I decided to hop on a plane to Joss, Nigeria to serve as a missionary with some of my closest pals in a place where Christians are murdered for their faith every day. And I know what you're thinking. That sounds like the perfect way to celebrate graduating high school, okay? And yes, my parents were supportive of this, but please don't think too long on wondering why that is. (laughs) So when I say we, I mean it was me, a junior in high school, a sophomore in high school, and an eighth grader who went and did this. Yeah. Imagine trying to convince the parents of an eighth grader to allow you to take their son into this situation on summer break. All I can say is it was a God thing that happened. And so summer break began, and we hopped on a plane to Joss, Nigeria, and we were there for a number of different weeks, and we did a variety of different things. But one of the things we did do is we were going around, and we were preaching all across the city multiple times a day in multiple different locations. And I remember there was this one instance that happened where we had probably our largest gathering, we had about 300 people from the, the town come, and, and we were preaching, and it was a great night. and afterwards, some of the young men came up to me, and they're chit-chatting, and I can see there's one guy, he's really nervous, and I'm wondering, okay, there's something that he, he has to ask. There's something that's bugging him. And so I ask him, "Hey, what's wrong?" And he immediately blurts out, "How are you allowed to preach?" Now, I kind of expected this a little bit. I was like, okay, I'm an 18-year-old. I'm here in this new country. I'm serving as a missionary, and I've got, uh, I'm the oldest on our team out of all of us, and so there's a little bit of hesitation of, you know, why are you allowed to preach? And so I go through my rehearsed answer, and he's like, he's shaking his head, no, 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 no. Why are you allowed to preach when you're a prostitute? (laughs) Yep, that's right. They thought I was a prostitute. (laughs) Apparently, in their town, for a guy to spike up his hair like I do is a public sign that you're processed to on the clock. (laughs) Yeah, laugh it up, Christians. (laughs) I had been there for about a week and a half by this point. And yes, looking back, it did explain a lot of the strange comments and conversation topics I had. All right. I was mortified when I found out. I was sitting there thinking, oh, great, this is their perception of me and, and how confusing that must be when I'm here preaching one thing and yet they're, they're thinking I'm something different. And yes, for the rest of the time I was there, I was constantly brushing my hair down. Okay? But I did not realize it until it was brought to my attention that my reputation was a bit tarnished. Have you ever had those moments? Hopefully not someone thinking you're a prostitute. In which case, we need to have another conversation after this. (laughs) No, I'm talking about someone thinking that you're something when you're not that. Maybe it comes from parents who just have too high of expectations upon you, and you feel like you can't reach it, and so you always feel like you're failing them. Or maybe it's the other way around, where you have kids, and and they're off, they're being wild and rebellious right now, and, and you feel like that is tarnishing your reputation as a parent. Or maybe it comes from a different way. Maybe it's a reputation that you actually earned. Maybe it's a reason why you've changed towns or or changed your jobs or even changed your church because you're trying to move yourself from a a shame and a regret that's from another area that haunts you. And while it is easy to be here and singing and smiling, there's a part of you that sits there and wonders if anyone knew what was going on in your life or the experiences that you've gone through, they would not love you, They would not want you here. I think many of us wrestle with the reputation that we're trying to leave behind, but I think all of us wrestle with the outcome of this reputation, which is thinking that we are beyond the bounds of love. Last week, we talked about John chapter 3 and the possibility of changing who we are, but the question that has to come out of that is, is there a point— Where we are beyond the boundaries of love? Is there a point where we are just unlovable? Where there's just no more hope for us? And see, that's what our reputation can sometimes make us feel. It can make us feel alone and alienated and abandoned by everyone else. And this is kind of the feeling of our world nowadays. We live in this. If you look at the news, no matter what news you follow, you're going to see this message of us versus them. And it's easy to get this feeling like we're being oppressed. It's easy to get this feeling that everyone's against us. And it's easy to take that feeling and point it towards God and think God doesn't love us, God doesn't care about us, God isn't interested in who we are because of some past experience in our life whether it was something that we did or we were simply a part of. What if it's not true? What if Jesus has something else to say about that? Well, thankfully, he does. And we find that in our text that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, and I do encourage you to bring your Bible or use an app, which I'm putting a lot of trust in you if you're going to pull up your phone, okay? Uh, use your app. I want you to see that everything I'm going to be pulling from the text this morning is coming directly from the text. So this is not Mason talking. That This is something which God is, I think, laid on my heart for us to talk about this morning. In John chapter 4, like I said, we're Well, first off, if you're a guest here, let me go and say I'm honored and glad that you're here. And if you're a guest, I would love to meet with you afterwards, or you can meet us at the Hub afterwards, and we got a gift for you. But for those, let me go ahead and explain. We're working our way through John's gospel, and our goal is not simply just to see that Jesus is God, which is the classic thing that everyone does. They want to see, hey, is he God or not? Our goal is to show us What does God do when he comes back into our world? Particularly when he steps into these tough and vulnerable and raw spaces of humanity and how he interacts with them. Which is why this morning we're going to talk about those raw spaces of rejection and alienation and marginalization and how God stepped into those spaces to really answer this question of are we beyond being loved? And so if you have your Bible, and it's going to be on the screen if you don't have one, I encourage you to follow along with me. We're going to be starting at verse 1, which reads, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Saqqara near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, and something you have to understand is, is this is a time of tyranny and rebellion and oppression, okay? And all this oppression and tyranny is coming from the hands of Rome, and the outcome of this is that there are these individuals, who, rebels, who are rising up, who are causing great movements, and great pe- all this great amount of people who are following them, and they're leading these revolts against Rome, and it always ends in a bloody massacre, because you cannot stand against the might of Rome. And these individuals, believe it or not, were calling themselves Messiahs. Now, that should be a little bit of an alarming flag for you, because you might be asking, well, isn't Jesus the Messiah? Well, yes, he is, but he was not the only person claiming to be the Messiah. And now when I say Messiah, I mean this promised king from the Old Testament, this, this individual who's going to defeat the enemies of God and is going to establish this kingdom that was never going to end. And so that there were all these individuals who kept thinking, Rome is the greatest enemy, and so we have to lead a revolt against Rome. And so there's all these people who are calling themselves messiahs who are rising up against Rome, but Rome was always stopping it. And what happened after every single time was the new laws and the new oppression just got worse. And so there's this situation where the Pharisees are actually getting involved. Now, remember last week, you talked a little bit about the Pharisees, that they believed that God's kingdom was coming, that these were oftentimes the heroes of their day before Jesus showed up. But their views on God's kingdom coming was on the basis of institutionalized racism, of that you have to be a good ethnic Jew. And so in many ways, they're trying to step into this space kind of like, when you get in trouble and your big brother intervenes to try to fix things because he knows that if mom and dad get involved, things are going to be so much worse. And so that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing in this situation. And to join a movement of that day, you were baptized into it. And so that's why there's this drama of the fact that Jesus is baptizing all these people. Well, not him, but his disciples are baptizing all these people into this movement. The assumption was he was like all the other messiahs, that he was just here to lead another revolt against Rome, which is why the Pharisees were adamant of trying to stop him in many ways. Not only because they're trying to protect the people from an outcome of Rome getting involved that they had seen countless times, but it's also because they had this partnership with Rome, kind of like I scratch your back, you scratch my kind of back kind of situation going on here. And so Jesus is being associated in this. His reputation is being tarnished that he's one of these rebels, that he's one of these trying to lead this revolt against Rome. But what people did not understand was that he was actually leading a revolt against the forces of darkness and sin and corruption that were behind Rome. And so Jesus is forced with this tarnished reputation, is forced to leave the area and to move. And you have to understand a little bit about the travel situation in Israel. Israel is a very tiny country. It's only about 120 miles long, okay? You can travel there in an afternoon from one end to the next, okay? Very tiny country, about the size of New Jersey. And in this day and age, in the first century world, it's split between three different sections or three different states. In the north, you have Galilee, where Jesus grew up, and he did the, the majority of his ministry, In the south, you have Judea, which is the desert parts, where it is all Jerusalem and all the famous people are coming or everyone's talking about and that sort of deal. But in between is this place called Samaria. Now a good Jew, if traveling from Galilee to Judea or vice versa, would avoid Samaria. They would actually go into another country just to avoid going through Samaria. It's like if you're a diehard Cardinals fan, you're probably going to avoid Cubs territory. All right. That's the tension. And here's why. The Samaritans and the Jews used to be one people. They used to be known as the Israelites centuries before this. And then there's this little bit of drama that happens in the Old Testament. They sort of have a civil war, and they're kind of known as two different kingdoms, but they're still known as the Israelites. Well, there's the northern kingdom, and there's the southern kingdom. And there comes a day where there's this empire known as Assyria, which invades the northern kingdom, takes people captive, takes them slavery, and moves them out of their land. And this people group, these Israelites, are, are being oppressed to such a degree that they think the only way this is going to be easier, the only way we're going to get out of this is if we blend ourselves with this group of people who have made us captives. So they start marrying with their captors, and they start blending their traditions. And what was once known as one people has now suddenly become something different. They become known as the Samaritans, these individuals who not only worship God, but they also worship other deities like Zeus, And they have these customs that are shared with the Jews, but they're also some customs from other people. So it makes no wonder that the Jews, who are facing their own exile from the hands of the Babylonians that lead to the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans, and they're being oppressed and they're being in slavery and all, how they're keeping their ethnic identity They're not marrying with the other people. They're not blending the religions. They're staying ethnically pure. It makes no wonder why they would look at the Samaritans like abominations. In fact, there were many times where they hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Romans because they understood why the Romans are oppressing them because they're an outside enemy. But this was a people group who were once with them, who were once united with them, and now they've become something different. You see, this is a hate that was extreme, to the point that it was far more severe of institutionalized racism than what we've seen in our own country in the Civil Rights Movement or the Civil War. These people hate each other. They oftentimes had wars with each other. So why is there this language here that says that Jesus had to go through Samaria when every other Jew would avoid this land? Well, here's the thing. There is no gospel without racial reconciliation. You see, the gospel is all about how there is no Jew, no Greek, no educated, no uneducated, no poor, no rich. It is all about God bringing restoration to all things that you need to all things. And so if you're sitting here thinking, man, that upsets me, then maybe you need to ask yourself some serious questions. Because if you do not see that there's honestly racial reconciliation that is crucial to the gospel, then you do not understand the New Testament and the gospel. And I'll stand by that. Because if your view of Christianity alienates anybody, marginalizes anybody, makes anyone feel like they are less than you based on how they look, where they come from, or their background, then you don't understand the work of Jesus. So it's in this space where if God truly did want to save the whole world, if He truly did love the whole world, He had to step into this dark arena of racism, of prejudice, of hate. So He had to go into Samaria. And he had to come to the well. And he sends his disciples away so that he's alone and vulnerable on a hot day where he's tired and thirsty, all because he knew of this one woman who was going to be coming to the text in a minute, who so desperately needed someone who understood her. Which makes us jump to verse seven, which reads, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I've already addressed the The issue of institutionalized racism that's playing up in this scene, but I also need to talk about this other custom which Jesus is breaking all the rules about. You see, women in that day and age, to come to the well by themselves in the middle of the day is something very strange. And here's why. Women in that day and age, if they were to come to the well to get water, would come either early in the morning or late in the evening when it's nice and cool outside, and they would come in packs. And the reason being is, well, two reasons. One, it's a social gathering. Okay, It's a whole bunch of women who want to be together, who want to talk about their husbands and their kids and all that and what's going on in the community. Okay, But it's also for the matter of security. Because this is a place outside of town, so you're coming, you want to come with other people because there might be wild animals, there might be some enemies out there, and so this is a matter of security. But here's this woman, she is coming in the middle of the day, at the hottest point of the day, and she's coming alone, she doesn't have anybody with her, she is a vulnerable, she is helpless And there could be the argument of maybe she's coming because it's out of necessity. Maybe she just really needs some water and just had to run back there. And that's certainly a valid argument, except for what we will see in a little bit in the rest of the text, that shows us that this woman is coming because she's trying to avoid everyone else. She's coming because she wants to avoid the gossip, the snickers, those looks behind her back those hateful remarks that she gets from everyone else. And so she has planned out her day to avoid certain people, even if it means that she's alone and vulnerable. Because here she is, in this turmoil of her life, she is coming because she is just hoping for one moment of peace in the craziness of her day, where she can avoid all the people who make her feel so hurt and feel so much pain. And imagine her surprise when sitting at the well is A Jew their enemy, this, this person that, you imagine she probably felt very scared in that moment. And I can imagine her also thinking, great, now, now I have to deal with this man's shameful disgust of me? As she shuffles forward to get her water and just to get away real fast, not make any eye contact because she understands the game. She knows this man's not going to greet her. He's not going to be pleasant to her. Because she's experienced this before. No Jew would ever do this, especially a a rabbi like Jesus because there's actually laws against it saying a rabbi could not speak to a woman, especially a Samaritan woman. But Jesus likes breaking the rules, especially when it comes to showing love to someone. He's willing to break the rules, Uh, which is rather unique because he doesn't just simply say hello or how's it going. No, he immediately looks at her and says, can you get me a drink? which is incredibly shocking because is admitting, I'm in need and only you can help me, which a Jew would never admit to a Samaritan. And so here he is, he's admitting his need. And I imagine the woman, she's a bit surprised, which we get that in our text. But if you understand the Greek language and what's going on here, there's an element of sassiness and sarcasm in her voice as if she's saying, of course, we Samaritans are the dirt under your feet until you need something from us. And instead of replying to her bitterness with more bitterness, here's how Jesus replies. Verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, obviously this is confusing the woman as she sees Jesus without anything to pull up water from. And so the assumption is, is this guy is insulting my heritage. Because remember, if you were paying attention in the first few verses, this is a very special location. This is a well, which Jacob, the Jacob from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, he established this well, which means he would have established this town. And so here she's sitting there thinking, like every other Jew would have responded of insulting her heritage. She's thinking that Jesus is doing the exact same thing. And so she responds to him with a little bit more sarcasm when she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. (laughs) <laughs> the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drained from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, remember, she's viewing Jesus' reply as him insulting her. It's bad enough that she gets this from her community, from her background. No, it's, now she's going to get it from this stranger? No, no, she's not having it. And so here's the truth. She is so broken and damaged that she came and see that Jesus is just interested in getting to know her and to have a conversation with her. Because that's how broken people are. They are quick to push people away and oftentimes fail to see when someone is just actually trying to be kind to them and trying to be nice to them. There's a lot of broken people in this world. And so Jesus, once again, he doesn't reply with bitterness. No, no. Here's how he replies in verse 13. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Jesus isn't talking about literal water here. He's using a metaphor, basically saying, hey, you could come here day after day after day after day and and work for these moments of peace and tranquility and to be alone from everyone else and alone from all the shame and the regret. But you're still gonna have to go back there. And you're still gonna have to enter in those places of pain and darkness and despair. But there's another way. And it's what Jesus is offering her, saying, look, this, th- I have the gift of new life to give to you. And that's what he's trying to offer to her. And it's her choice whether to take it or not. But well, you know what's rather unique about this is that it doesn't only meet all her needs of, for forgiveness, for acceptance, for redemption. No, no, this is something that would bubble out of her and it would affect those around her. That this is not just a gift for her, but this is a gift for other people. And I don't think she understood that Jesus is talking in metaphors because she immediately asked in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, she doesn't understand that Jesus is talking in metaphors, but she understands enough that, okay, if this guy is being serious, then let's test this, okay? Let's see how serious he is. And so Jesus immediately changes the tactic and goes right for the gut right here when he asks in verse 16, or when he says, Go, call your husband and come here. The awkwardness is on the table. Basically he's saying, hey, let's talk about why you're here alone. Let's talk about why you're hiding out from everybody else and why you feel so shame and regret and despair in your life. Let's talk about that. And so there's this situation for this woman that she could either reveal just a portion of her life or or she can just try to lie. And so she jumps in and verse 17, the woman answered, I have no husband, as if that would just settle the matter at all. But Jesus immediately locks in on that. And he says to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. See, this woman, she tried to only reveal a portion of her shame, just to crack the door three inches. But Jesus kicks down the door. He exposes all of her shame. And this is a very uncomfortable moment as her entire life story is fully known by this stranger. And it's fully in the open. And yet there's this, this wonder, this, uh, this feeling that this woman was probably amazed. That not only does he know everything, but yet he is still, he's still sitting here. And he's still talking to me. He still seems to be interested in me. He's not running in shame like everyone else. He's not insulting me. No, he actually seems to be interested in me. And this scares the woman because she immediately tries to change the conversation. In verse 19, she says, uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So notice in the uncomfortable exposure of her life story, what she does is she's putting up these walls between her and Jesus. This is just some uh, throwing up some theological and political debate. It really doesn't matter. She's just basically saying, hey, Jesus, don't you know where you are? You shouldn't be speaking to me. You shouldn't be interested in me. Don't you know my past story? And, And yet this is who you are? It is merely her trying to push back Jesus, to create hoops that he has to jump through all to protect herself because she's played this game before. She's expecting to be filled with shame and to be dumped with all this pain and misery and people looking at her with disgust. So this is strange. This is just a wall that she's thrown up to because this is what broken people do. They throw up walls as soon as it gets vulnerable with Jesus or anybody because they don't want to feel hurt again. And so Jesus plays a little bit long with her, her statement. He says in verse 21, he starts out by saying, woman, now, remember about two weeks ago, I talked about this Greek word used for woman here. It's not a derogative, insulting term like we use in our day and age. This is a woman of, or a word of incredible respect, of admiration, of honor, which is amazing when he has just revealed that he knows all her shame and secrets, that he's still responding to her like this when no one else does. And he says, woman. must worship in spirit and truth. Basically what Jesus is saying is that this institutionalized racism that is dividing the Jews and Samaritans, it's ending. Because God is working to bring two people and make them into one. Of Take what was the fruition of sin, which sin always leads to separating people. And here was God saying he is working in the midst of that to cleanse that to restore what was lost and broken. So that worship is no longer about what separates us or what limitations we have. Worship becomes about worshiping in spirit and truth. And to worship in spirit and truth means to deal openly and honestly with God, of the willingness to be vulnerable before him, to say, these are the dark areas of my life. Jesus, please come and dwell in them because I can't fix this. And so this is stirring some questions in the woman's mind because if Jesus is proposing that the kingdom is coming and that it's changing everything she's ever known, then there has to be this question of, well, who is the king? In the past few weeks, we've been talking about this Jesus who's bringing in this kingdom, who's talking about this kingdom coming into our midst, but, but who is the king? So, Which is why she asks, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And you see, she's testing the water. She's a little bit suspicious. This guy, he's wise, he's smart, but he also knows everything about my life, all the secrets I've been keeping. And she, in her life of shame and regret and misery, has had this one hope that maybe things will change. That maybe this is not all that there is out there, that maybe there's gonna come a day and age for this is just going to be a matter of her past and that she would have a new beginning. And so this is what she's presenting to Jesus of saying, are you that one who's going to do that for us? Which is why in verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. This is the first time that Jesus openly admits who he is? Remember, this is a world where everyone's fighting over who is the Messiah, and here Jesus says for the first time he has openly admitted who he is. And imagine this surprise: where here is this King that has been promised he's going to restore all things, and yet he's taken the time to have an intimate and private conversation with a woman who feels like no one cares about her, no one notices her, no one loves her, and yet here he is—he's showering her with love and attention and affection. And her response is to run off and go or tell her community. I don't think she fully understood that he was also God because if she did, she might have fallen on her knees and worshiped him. But instead, she goes back to her community, back to the people who hated her, who made her feel so little and so much pain. And she goes and tells them, Hey, I just met this stranger who showed me love and compassion. Come and meet him too. Which is remarkable because every other time that Jesus reveals who he is, he always follows it up by saying, hey, don't tell people just yet. Wait till after I've died and risen again. But in this moment, for this woman who had no voice, no rights in her community, where everyone hated her, Jesus does not tell her to be silent, but lets her go and to spread the word of who, she, or who he is and what he has done in her life. And the response that happens Well, when we jump down to verse 39, we see. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, which is remarkable. Because remember, these are two people who are enemies. And yet they're coming to Jesus saying, please stay with us. And they said to the woman, to the woman that they hated, that they rejected, that they abandoned and alienated and marginalized. They said to her, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Because Jesus entered into her life and transformed it and showed love and light in those areas of darkness in her life that she kept secret, that she hid from everyone else. Not only was her life transformed, but so was everyone else's in this community who came to know Jesus as the Savior. And you know what that means for us today? It means this. You are never beyond the bounds of the love of Jesus. Let me say that again. You are never beyond the bounds of the love of Jesus. Jesus. People are going to say differently. People are going to criticize you. They're going to judge you. They're going to shame you. They're going to belittle you. And you might walk away from those moments thinking that they're right. You know what? Here's the real shame. This happens even in the church. I have friends and family members and acquaintances who want nothing to do with church or Christians because some church or Christians made them feel so hurt, made them feel alienated, abandoned, and alone. And every time I hear these stories, which are becoming more and more common, all I can ever think of is, I'm so sorry no one ever told you about Jesus. Because he's not like that. He doesn't shame. He doesn't regret. He doesn't reject. He doesn't marginalize or alienate. No, he loves and he saves and beyond my feeble words can describe, he has gone to such lengths and bounds to create a family that he is inviting everyone to be part of. Where your shame and your background and your reputation and your experiences no longer matter. What matters is that you're in Christ and you believe in who he is, that we are not who we once were. And to think otherwise or to think that you're the exception to this is to make a mockery of the God who loved you, who died for you, and has gone to such lengths to show you love. It doesn't matter what your parents say or what the world says or what your friends say or what I might say or what you say about yourself. You are never beyond the bounds of the love of Jesus. Here at the Bluff, we're trying to imitate that. Our mission and our desire is to love people and love God. We want to be a place where those who have stories of being hurt by church or Christians feel welcomed enough to come here and know that they are welcomed, that they are loved first and foremost by Jesus. That it doesn't matter your background, that you're welcome here. But here's the honest truth we're going to mess that up sometimes because we're still human and we're still trying to figure this out as well. So there are going to be days where we say things that are going to hurt you or we're going to fail to show love or we're going to fail to look like Jesus. But here's the great news. Jesus never fails to look like Jesus. So while we try to figure this out And we do our best to love God and love others. Don't fault us. We're not going to claim to be perfect. But you know what we are going to claim to be? Saved by God and loved by God. Because we claim that His love has no bounds, that we are never beyond the scope of His love, of His care, and of His interest in us. And we invite you to be part of that as well. Be part of the bluff. We will never claim to be Jesus in this story, but what we do claim to be is the woman whose life was exposed before the king who knew it all, and yet he still had interests in us and he still has interests in you too. And we are going back to our family, our friends, and our community that might have made us feel so hurt, so ashamed, and so rejected, and we're saying, guess what? There was this guy named Jesus. He has changed my life because he loves me, and I want you to get to know him too. And so we invite you to be part of that. That is why this morning, as you might be able to tell, that we are celebrating communion because we believe that we are never beyond the bounds of God's love for us. And God's love was put fully on display as he hung on a cross where all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our darkness was poured out on him. And he chose that to show us this truth that we are never beyond the bounds of his love, of his redemption, of his care which is why we're going to celebrate this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to get up, we're going to uh, eat some bread, we're going to dip it in the juice in memory of that sacrifice. Now, I understand this could be a little bit confusing because it's been a while since we've done communion. So you might be thinking, I have no idea what this represents, and I understand that. Okay, I haven't been able to teach well on that. I've only been here four weeks, okay? Uh, but this is the one of the most unique aspects of us as Christians is that we have this ritual where we are in some mystery which I can't fully explain. God is present and we are celebrating what he has done for us to show us that we are never beyond the bounds of his love. So let me give some instructions on how this is going to work. Here in a second, I'm going to pray. A band's going to come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And I want you, when you are ready, to come up, take a piece of bread. Dip it in the juice and eat it. But don't rush up here. In fact, the Bible talks uh, very adamantly about rushing to take communion, that it's actually dangerous for you. And I don't want to scare you. Uh, What I want to say is take a moment, whether that's three seconds, 30 seconds, three minutes, three hours, I don't care, to chew on this fact that you are never beyond the bounds of the love of Jesus that there might be some dark areas in your life that might try to scream and tell you otherwise. And those are the places which God and Jesus is wanting to step into. And so I want you to take a minute and to wrestle with that fact of what are the areas of my life that I'm keeping from Jesus? What are the areas of my life that Jesus is not part of? And how he so desperately wants to be part of them. And when you're good and ready, then I invite you at that moment to come up to either one of the tables in the front or one of the tables back there and to take part in communion. And then you can return to your seat and continue singing. And if in that moment you're wrestling, and you're thinking, I don't have this Jesus in my life, or there are matters in my life that I need help with to get Jesus into them, then I want to encourage you that you can come and talk to me or one of our elders. Because after our elders have those same moments, uh, we're all going to be in the back of the room, and you're always welcome to come and talk to us. We're going to be back there every single Sunday. Because our hope is that you get to see Jesus, how he loves you, how he cares for you, how he so desperately takes notice of you, that you're always on his mind. And if you need help with understanding this or having Jesus in your life, then we're going to be back there, and you can come talk to us and then. But I understand even in this moment, that could be uncomfortable. And you might be thinking, even though it's in the back room and no one's going to see me or hear me, uh, that's still an uncomfortable exposure. So I want you to know you can always call or text me. You can always come by the office. You can shoot us an email. We're here for you. Me and Dave are in the office Monday through Friday. And we love when people come by and are like, hey, I need to talk to you about Jesus. And so let's pray and let's, let's celebrate the fact that we are never beyond the bounds of the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so good beyond what feeble words I can describe. And while I continue to mess up, because I'm still human as well, Father, it is good to know that your word says that we are never beyond the bounds of your love that you have not given up on us even when we give up on ourselves. Father, I ask in this moment that you are present as we take part in communion, as we celebrate in who you are, that in a world that was full of darkness and shame, pain and regret, you stepped into those places to be with us, which is what we hope to celebrate now. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.